Now, guys, um, just in case you've gotten a, a bit weary with this Elijah, Elisha stuff, um, I've decided to give you just a little bit of a break. Uh, this, this, this story this morning is not about Elijah and Elisha. It is about, it is, however, about Elijah's number one nemesis, which is the king of Israel, whose name is Ahab. Ahab dies in a battle with the Syrians. That, however, is not the battle that the scriptures would have you focus on. The battle that the scriptures would have you see is the battle that rages between the false prophet and the true prophet. In fact, the message of this section of the scriptures has to do with understanding Israel's history, not in terms of her political fortunes or various battles or various kings, but her history is to be understood in terms of the battle between the false prophet and the true prophet. I'm going to read you this story in just a second, but may I say just editorially, I love this story. I love this story because it boils everything down to a simple question. And here's the question. Who are you going to believe? <laughs> Who or what am I going to believe? And depending on how you answer that question, it will shape some very important decisions that you have to make. So with that in mind, let me read you this story. It's in 1 Kings 22. It starts at verse 1. I'll stop at verse 38. It goes a little bit further, but I think that will be enough for you to get the gist of the story. So listen now to that which is the inspired, the inerrant, the infallible word of the living God as recorded for us in 1 Kings chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel, that would be Ahab, and the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. And the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Oh, is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him. 
for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. And the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes, at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Shanana, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. The messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, go up and try him. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master, let each return to his home in in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And and, And one said one thing and another said another. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Shanana, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, how did the spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? Micaiah said, behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. The king of Israel said, seize Micaiah and take him back to Arnon, the the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, thus says the Lord, put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hear all you peoples. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went to Ramoth Gilead and the king of Israel and said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. The king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him and Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore, he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset, a cry went through the army. Every man to his city and every man to his country. 
So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Ahab's life ended the same way it had begun. By his uh, ignoring and rejecting all of those overtures on the part of God's prophets. By Ahab rejecting all of the truth brought to him by these prophets. In this story, it was Micaiah that that he refused to listen to. But Micaiah wasn't the first one. Um, in fact, you might recall it was in chapter 20 that he was approached by a, an unnamed prophet. The man was never given a name. He uh, blew him off. And then in chapter 21, it was Elijah over this whole issue of, of Naboth's vineyard. And here it is Micaiah. Um, you have three prophets, three warnings, three witnesses, Three chances. All signs of of God's great long-suffering and mercy towards Ahab. And yet, three strikes. And now for Ahab, game over. Guys, um, this is the same way that God works with us today. It's, it's, it's a God, a long-suffering God who, who condescends to confront you and me with truth over against error. And by his so doing, he creates a crisis of faith. And the crisis is this. Who am I supposed to believe? Who's telling me the truth? And how am I to know the difference between the voices that I hear competing for my allegiance? You know, there's a, there's a statement in uh, Deuteronomy 13 where Moses gives to the people of Israel. He says, this is how you can judge a true prophet. And that is, basically, it's by the outcome of what he says. But the, but the point in this story is that Ahab and Jehoshaphat have to make a decision about who they're going to listen to before the outcome. Just like you and me. And, and, and how are you going to tell, how are you going to, how are you going to tell the difference between a sheep and a wolf, especially when the wolf is is often dressed up like a sheep. You know, guys, there's there's something in this story that I that I want you to see. <clears throat> it starts in verse 11, but it's also mentioned in verse 12, and verse 15, and verse 24. Look at verse 11. 
And Zedekiah, now Zedekiah is one of the false prophets. He's one of the prophets of Baal. But notice what he says. Zedekiah, the son of Shanana, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord. Do you see that? The point is this, guys. When Elijah was fighting the prophets of Baal over on Mount Carmel, do you remember that story where where they they, uh, danced around these sacrifices and and Elijah says, if God be God, serve him. Remember that story? When you're on top of the mountain, when they were on top of Mount Carmel, it was very easy to spot the prophets of Baal. It was very easy to spot the false prophets. But here, in this story, Zedekiah is claiming to have some access to the words of Yahweh, the words of the Lord. Picking out the true prophet from the false prophet is made so much harder because in many instances, they're using the same language. They're using the same words. And and on some occasions, they're appealing to the same sources of authority. You know, guys, I've used this before, but, I mean, you seem to know about it, so it does illustrate my point. You've heard of the Jesus Seminar? Ladies and gentlemen, that isn't even good scholarship, much less good theology. But the point is simply, they're claiming to speak in the name of Jesus. And so you've got to sort out, are they a true prophet or a false prophet? And you've got to do that long before the outcome. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what I call a crisis of faith. How do you do it? What will help? There's a little bit in this story that I think will help us. So what I want to do with this story is just kind of look at it quickly in the hope that we can spot some things that will enable us to uh, to make the right call. We're in, we're in the midst of the crisis of faith as to who will we listen to? Who will we believe? And then... Having believed them, make choices in response to what they've said. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what I call a crisis of faith. There's a couple of things I want to, a couple of three things that I want to draw your attention to in the story. The first one is pretty obvious, and that is simply that, that the position of the false prophet is normally the majority position. This is not the first time that there were 400 prophets of Baal versus one prophet of the Lord. It happened, as I said, on on Mount Carmel. You may recall when when the 450 prophets of Baal were executed. But they've reloaded. There's never going to be a shortage of false prophets, folks. Because there is this innate hostility towards the the truth of God. That is a result of the fall. On most, in most instances, the position of the false prophet is going to be the majority position. 
I don't like being in the minority. It's hard to be in the minority. I, I really think that's one of the benefits about a, a church involvement. Because over here, you're not in the minority. You're what, Those strange things that you believe about a man who was dead for three days and got up and walked out, that's believed by the majority of us, isn't it? But normally, ladies and gentlemen, the position of the false prophet is the majority position. Putting the position of the true prophet as the minority voice. Now, the other thing, or a second thing that I would draw you, in terms of spotting the false prophet, gang, there is a very familiar ring. There's a very familiar sound in the voice of the false prophet. I want to show it to you. (coughs) Pardon me. Um, In this story... Ahab is trying to talk Jehoshaphat into going to a battle with him. But apparently, Jehoshaphat is bulking. He's unnerved about something. He's heard 400 people say, yay, 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 go do that. Everything's fine. But apparently, he's spiritually attuned enough to know that there's something not quite right here. Maybe it's that he's aware that God does not normally bring a message that I'm okay and you're okay and everything's perfectly okay. You're okay just the way you are. We're all okay. Which is the message of the false prophets. <clears throat> Guys, you may have heard the name of Carl Bart. Carl Bart was considered by some to be the... Um, the greatest theologian of the 20th century. I'm not sure I agree with that, but he said some good things. He taught systematics, and I love systematics. And um, Karl Barth said this. It's a, it's a brief quote, but listen to what he said. He said, systematics is the science that tests the church's proclamation by the standard of the word of God. What a great statement. Did you get it? Systematics is the science that tests what the church is saying by the standard of the word of God. And, he he adds, if systematicians emerge from their study to announce, all is well, steady as she goes, they have made a mistake in their calculations. Here's my point, guys. God does not exist to underwrite our projects. He he does not exist to ensure that our own personal pursuits of money and fame and success go smoothly. But that's how he's being treated by Ahab, and that's how he's treated by some of us. Folks, um, it is always a temptation to prefer a smooth, self-affirming word over a confronting word. And that temptation has been almost institutionalized in the 21st century church. For instance, the the word sin is avoided in, in, in many places as being needlessly offensive, especially if you're dealing with wealthy church members. 
Churches advertise themselves as being welcoming and 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 um, and, and, and non judgmental. We have a non judgmental atmosphere, and the implication is. There's some very harsh and judgmental churches out there, and we all know who they are. Guys, um, the 21st century church has come to mirror the consumer culture in which she finds herself. And so she offers this wide, this wide array of, of spiritual gimmickry. So that everybody can settle back into some kind of Muzak spirituality, very confident that they're not going to be confronted with any clear message to radically change who they are and what they're doing. Guys, the Word of God normally does not affirm us in our plans. It rather challenges our plans. It confronts them. It undoes them. The message that is most wanted in the in the in the even in the church today is a message not about how to be good, but how to feel good. We we have turned the, the message of the gospel into something therapeutic. We, the, 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 this new spiritual message has abandoned every vestige of the moral. And is safely, comfortably immersed in the psychological. And the thing that grieves me, guys, is that it's the so-called evangelical church that is that is propounding such a message. Particularly if you're in the world of the emergent church or the seeker-driven church, offering a message that divorces the gospel from from biblical truth guys the 21st century church it seems to me is almost decided that her role is to answer this question what is god going to do about my job what is god going to do about my marriage And there's very little said about what God has done about my sin. Guys, I'm simply saying that, that one of the evidences of the false prophet, it has a familiar ring to it. It's a ring that infirms and, and, and doesn't try to overturn it avoids anything pointed and sharp. And that's exactly what you find the majority doing with Ahab and Jehoshaphat. There's one other thing that I want you to see, which I think is, is just scary. I said a moment ago that Jehoshaphat is, is balking. He... He's not sure he wants to go into this battle with Ahab. And, and, and apparently he has several reasons. <clears throat> but here's one of the reasons that he might have had. Look at your text, guys. Look at verse 6. Um, Shall we go up to the battle? And they said, go. And here's what I want you to see. 
For the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Do you see that? There's a small problem with that translation, ladies and gentlemen. In the Hebrew, there is no it. It simply says, the Lord will give into the hand of the king. That's all it says. Now notice, guys, that's what came out of the mouth of these prophets. Notice, they do not say what is going to be given. Is it a city or is it a person? They do not identify, they do not specify which king they're talking about. So the prophecy itself could mean something like this. It could mean, the Lord will deliver the city into the hand of Ahab. It could mean that. Or, it could mean, the Lord will deliver Ahab into the hand of the king of Syria. Do you see, ladies and gentlemen, that basically they have said nothing. Herman Melville was, um, you know, you know who he is. He's the uh, the famous author of Moby Dick. He was haunted by this passage. He was haunted because he recognized that there is a there's an ambiguity to what they've said. There, there's for false prophets, ladies and gentlemen, ambiguity. Leads to a great deal of job security. Because if Ahab goes to Ramoth Gilead and wins, then the prophets can say, well, like we said, the Lord will give Ramoth Gilead into the hand of King Ahab. But if Ahab goes up to Ramoth Gilead and loses, they can say, "Hmm, we told you so. The Lord will give Ahab into the hand of the king. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the methodology of the false prophet. To say a lot of spiritual stuff and in essence say nothing. My friends, the word of God is discriminating. Not only because it cuts to the heart. But also because it says this and it doesn't say that. You know, I read recently, and I, I think I read it in Table Talk. I'm pretty sure it came from Table Talk. And the author in the Table Talk said that the 21st century pulpit has become adept at calling a spade a shovel. You get that? I love that. I mean, you've heard the, the, the little thing that says, yeah, he knows how to call a spade a spade. <laughs> this author was saying, The 21st century church has become adept. The 21st century pulpit has become adept at calling a spade a shovel. Guys, a word from a prophet that cannot be disproved cannot come from a true prophet. The mind of God over most issues is very clearly explained in this book. Yeah, there's some, there's some things, baptism, you know. But in the main, the mind of God 
says this and it doesn't say that. And it's found in this book. So there's an ambiguity, ladies and gentlemen, to the voice of the false prophet. It's called job security. And so in the, in the face of that, Ahab reluctantly calls for Micaiah. I, you know, he never, I don't like him. I hate him, in fact, because he never says anything nice about me. But he calls him anyway. And I want you to notice this, guys. Look at verse 15. The first thing that comes from Micaiah is exactly what the prophets of Baal had said. Now notice what, what Ahab says in verse 16. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Do you see what's happening there, ladies and gentlemen? Ahab recognizes that Micaiah is lying. And he is saying exactly what the false prophets of Baal said. He recognizes the truth. He doesn't like the truth. And so he rejects the truth and finds a way to get around the truth. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how a lot of 21st century people resolve their crisis of faith. They hear the truth. They recognize it to be truth. They don't like it as truth. They reject it as truth. And then they find a way to do what they wanted to do in the first place. And then you'll notice, Micaiah in verse 17 launches into his real message. And he says, I see Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep having no shepherd. And then in verse 19, he begins to depict a scene from the heavenly court where God uses lying prophets to deceive um, Ahab as God sends this stroke of judgment. And if you want to pass some blame around, how about those 400 ambiguous prophets who are all liars? Just like the one they serve. Now, ladies and gentlemen, um, the Bible makes a very clear distinction between the enemy and the hostage. You understand that? That is, if you'll watch Jesus in the New Testament, he, he is compassionate towards the crowds. But he looks at the scribes and the Pharisees and he says, woe to you. Woe to you, you are whitewashed sepulchers. He makes a distinction between the hostage and the in, those who stand and lie to God's people. He deals with very harshly. One more thing and I'm done. I want you to know the, the results and the, the ramifications and the, and, and the sadness of believing the wrong prophets. It cost Ahab his life, as you see. In verse 30, Ahab cooks up this little scheme that he's going to disguise himself and he's going to go into battle. 
but his little scheme does not thwart Yahweh's plan, as you see in verse 34. But Ahab even warned, confidently strides into this battle thinking that he can cheat death and escape the word of the Lord. But this God of truth of ours, he's also the God who is sovereign over the entirety of his creation. He controls this random soldier. This is verse 34. He controls this random soldier with this random arrow. He controls all of the elements like the wind and the humidity. And he directs this arrow into this tiny little crack in between the scale armor, right into Ahab's heart. And all of that, all of that could have been avoided if he had simply listened to and yielded to the truth of Almighty God. And let me remind you, it was a truth that he recognized to be true. Verse 16. You know, guys, I've been a pastor now for um, 34 years, 35 years next year. And I um, I watch this kind of scene play out again and again over big things, over little things. And every time I watch it, I, it gets harder to watch. And sadder. I say to people, um, <clears throat> you know, you really ought not dabble in that pornography stuff. And then a few years later, their marriage is broken up. Families ruined. Women are abused. Even littler things or smaller things, I, I watch people. I watch people treat the Sabbath, the Sabbath. I, I watch them treat the Sabbath like it's Saturday Part Two. Thinking no harm, no foul. And I want to know. Who told you that? Because whoever told you that lied to you. This God of ours is no marshmallow in the sky. This this God doesn't play softball. He's a warrior who fights to win. He's, he's a God who overtakes the wicked in their schemes. And yet, in the instance with Ahab, he sent three prophets. Guys, you can't miss that part. Three times, God sends men to tell Ahab the truth, and he blows it off. Three times Ahab had a chance to resolve his crisis of faith, to listen to the truth. 
of God and yield to it, but he blew it all off. Because this long-suffering God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet. Tell me, how many times have you heard this? How many times has the truth of God been pressed upon you? And you thought, ah, what the heck? I'm going to do what I want to do. And this long-suffering God continues to come again and again. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a God to be loved. But he's also a God to be feared. I want to read you something. Um, remember when Mary, the mother of Jesus, found out that she was pregnant? She, she sang a song which has been called the Magnificat. It's found in Luke 1. This is Mary singing, and I'm just going to read you a couple of sentences. She says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty-handed. How many times have you heard that? How many times have you been reminded that God cannot be had on our terms? That he can't be trifled with? That he can't be manipulated? He speaks and he expects us to gladly yield to his revealed will. He is the... He is the central axis around which we must revolve, not the other way around. And choosing to ignore that is sad. But it's also catastrophic. Ladies and gentlemen, we are called to base our lives, our actions, our decisions, our behaviors on the words of a Jew who was born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth. Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, to be God-centered is to be Christ-centered. And it is this Christ that some would call a false prophet. Is he? That, ladies and gentlemen, is your crisis of faith. Is Jesus Christ the man he claimed to be or the one he claimed to be? Is he the way, the truth, and the life No one coming to the Father but by Him. Is He? 
Oh, my friend, you've got to make that call long before the outcome. There's a simple way to avoid losing to this God. And it is by humbly receiving the gift of salvation that he offers to to all who ask for it. God forgives us because Christ died for us. And in Christ I am safe. But I am safe no place else. God undresses me with his word. And then he redresses me in the robes of Christ's righteousness. You believe that? It'll change the way you do choose and live and behave and decide. Our Father, I do pray that you will um, use your word to remind us that you will not be trifled with. You will not stand idly by and see us ignore your word and try to sidestep it. And I pray, Lord, that you'll forgive us for having so done. And from the pulpit to the nursery, we are we are people who who think we know better. And it's not working for us, Lord. And so, Father, would you uh, remind us that you have spoken the truth in Christ Jesus and that all those who yield to him are saved and those who don't are lost. And then those of us who have, O oh God, give us great delight in chasing after the great beauty of the revealed will of God. We thank you for condescending to putting it in a book for us so that we can find out what you think and what you love and what you hate and that we can order our lives thereby. Stir us to that end, Father, and we ask it in Jesus' name.